Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. If you're a first-timer, welcome aboard. Quick reminder before I get to the Astros, if you missed the last show, go look for my conversation with House of Houston's Brian Patterson on all the Texans drama this past week. If you're a huge Texans fan, I've had a recent podcast with the Chronicle, Steph Stradley and the Athletics, Aaron Reese, along with in-depth looks at several of the Texans draft picks with media who've covered them. Also, do not forget about my conversation earlier this week with Oilers Love You Blue hero, Vernon Perry. Nobody in Houston NFL history over the last 50 years has come up bigger in the playoffs than Vernon Perry. All right, back with me is my good friend Ben DuBose, host of Locked On Rockets podcast and occasional contributor for MLB.com. And Ben, have you ordered a Jordan jersey yet? I have not ordered the jersey, but I did order one of those uh, Air Jordan shirts that I think Running Game has put together. I think that's pretty clever, so I'm I'm rolling with that. <laughs> that's pretty good. Should should he be a front runner for Rookie of the Year? I mean, why hasn't he been invited to the Home Run Derby yet? When does Jim Crane put out the bidding for a Minute Maid Park statue? <laughs> we might need uh, maybe five homers instead of two. Uh, let's just say that if he keeps on this pace, which would be over a full season. 162 home runs, that would be pretty phenomenal. I think I might settle for uh, maybe a quarter of that. I think I'd be okay. No, he looks tremendous. And the hype, while certainly it's early, it definitely appears warranted. Oh, my goodness. And we're recording this just so everybody knows right before Wednesday night's game. So, you know, he had the two home runs. Uh, the best Jordan tweet so far, Brian Harder tweeted, Jordan Alvarez is Jeff Luno's mulligan for J.D. Martinez, uh, Josh Davies tweeted, Chuck Norris checks his closet for Jordan Alvarez. Uh, Anthony Myers tweeted, so when 44 gets retired, will it be for Roy Oswalt or Jordan? And uh, I tweeted, Tony Kemp may have hurt his hand on that high five, but maybe he should consider himself lucky that Jordan hasn't accidentally picked him up and used him as a bat. Uh, <laughs> David Barron uh, also tweeted, nothing funny, but he did mention that Sunday's most watched show on Houston television was the Astros win over the Orioles that featured Jordan's debut. And Ben, uh, you know, Garrett Stubbs says he's one of the nicest guys he's ever been around. And it's incredible because at 21 years old, 349 days, he's the youngest player to homer in his first Astro game. And he's the second youngest player and the live ball era to Homer in each of his first two career games trails only Joey Gallo. And is it just me or is Jordan not only helping us with his hitting, but behind Yuli, I think he's revitalized Yuli a little bit. Yeah, I think so. And to have that type of bat in the middle of the lineup, people don't realize how many of those wins after losing Altuve, Springer, and Correa almost all at once were just patched together. They were scraping by as best they could and you know, they I would call them character wins, Robert, in that, you know, clearly there's a good culture. They have good pitching. And if it's close in the late innings, then, of course, Presley and Osuna, by and large, there have been a few blips of late. But generally, there's just been a lot of culture of this team. It was not going to last for the entirety of those absences. It sounds like Altuve could be back first. Then Springer after that, Correa's the last of the three, it looks like. But at some point, you needed a true masher, someone in the middle of that lineup, especially because right in the middle of Altuve, Springer, and Correa being out, you also had uh, Michael Brantley going into his first slump of the year. Now, thankfully, last night, the Tuesday game against the Brewers, he seemed to be snapping out of that. But I think you needed something, and that's why it was a really encouraging sign to see after that Saturday game against the Orioles in which they were pretty much lifeless. I like seeing Luno show that sign of regression, that even after one game, 
you know, he could see because really, Robert, the few games before that, you know, you could see signs of it. It just didn't all come together. And they stole some of those. The Saturday game against the Orioles, it was pretty clear that they needed another bat and specifically just a talent bat because that second homer on Tuesday night, Robert, that was not that great of a swing. That was just pure power. I mean, he golfed it out. And that's just, you know, that's just one of those most MLB players, they just can't get to that pitch. And if they can get to that pitch, they're certainly not going to be able to hit it out of the yard. And the Astros, with all of the absences, they just needed someone with that level of talent. That's what being without Springer, Altuve, and Correa puts them in a bad spot. And that's why Alvarez, this particular week, I think his addition comes at a really good time. Astros Twitter just looks to be in a rush to show Tyler White the door. But Ben, I, I think he's got <laughs> job security as long as the only other backup first baseman, Aledmus Diaz, is on the IL. And, and, and he's going to be on there a little bit while with that setback. Yeah, I agree. I think Diaz, I would be a little surprised, Robert, if they even see him before the All-Star break. Because he's had three separate issues with that hamstring. First, it happened in Boston. It came back a couple of days later. They tried to play it off as nothing. Then, of course, he tweaked it the Sunday game against, yeah, Sunday against Boston the next weekend because they had the back-to-back against the Red Sox. And then uh, this last one in which he was warming up with Springer, you actually saw the hamstring kind of give out a little bit when Mark Berman tweeted out Sunday the video of him running. So now that's three separate occasions. To me, once you're looking at that many times the same hamstring, if you don't shut it down, you're looking at a Kiki Kuti type situation, you know, because that's just something that will happen over and over again. So yeah, I think that's bought Tyler some job security. And the other thing is that finally they hit a stretch with a lot of off days, you know, this week, Monday and Thursday off. That's what people don't necessarily realize is that they had such a long stretch without any off days at all. And so that put a premium. That's why they were carrying, you know, 13 pitchers. Well, now you don't have to have guys like Goudouin and, and uh, uh, Brady Rogers. Sorry, I got tongue-tied on what I was trying to say there. You don't have to have just long relievers because you need bodies because you just have so many days. And of course, the back end of the rotation is not ideal. So I think between not needing as many pitchers and now Diaz being out, yeah, I think Tyler's here for three or four more weeks. If for no other reason, you just need one more infielder that you can trust to play first base. Yeah, I I just don't think uh, Goodwin should ever see an Astros uniform again after what we've seen of him. I I don't think you just get to play in the major leagues because you could throw the ball left-handed. So I hope that's the last that we see of him. If the organization, Ben, had to do it all over again, do you think they'd have worked maybe a little bit harder at making Alvarez into a first baseman over the last few months instead of a left fielder, especially when you know Brantley is your left fielder next year? Uh, He's signed till next year, and Yuli is not only just aging, but also versatile enough to where you could be move him around maybe as a super sub um, so it gives you that that spot where, where maybe Alvarez could fit in right there at first. Probably. I think to some degree, Alvarez came up so quickly. You look back, even you know the start of last year, this isn't someone that I think they would have believed that by certainly not in the middle of 2019, maybe not even until 2020, could be an MLB contributor. It just escalated so quickly that I think they were caught a little bit flat-footed Now, in fairness, it's easier to learn first base than it is to learn outfield positions. So I think it's something that they're not worried long term. They think they'll be able to teach him that. Of course, in AL, there's a DH, although Hinch likes to use that for his position players as much as he can. I just think in this particular case, they were caught a little bit flat-footed based on how quickly he went through the system and 
then especially with the recent wave of injuries, there's just no real way that they could hold off any longer. So, yeah, perfect world. You'd like to have him have first base experience, especially because, you know, once everybody gets healthy, you get Springer back in the outfield. There's still a place, assuming you don't trade Kyle Tucker by the deadline, then you need to figure out a way to get him in there by the end of the season. And first base is the one spot where Yuli is good of a story as he is it's not like in his mid-30s that he should just be a fixture beyond replacement so yeah I think over the long haul they need him to be able to play some first base uh it may not happen this year but I think certainly uh spring training at the latest next year that's when they'll be emphasizing that pretty heavily a couple things besides uh Jordan going on there was a little disappointment when Jeff Luno couldn't deal for JT Real Muto over the winter when he traded for Chirinos I think some of us thought Oh, he'll be a really good backup catcher after we deal for somebody better. Well, Robinson Chirinos has quietly put up an 891 OPS, 11 home runs, 31 RBIs, nearly all-star type numbers. Ria Muldo has a 792 OPS. He's totally outperformed the guy that everybody wanted here so badly. Yeah, and you know, I know some folks hate these, you know, cross-sport comparisons, but Chirinos to me it felt like a Daryl Morey type signing in that you you move the pieces on the chessboard based on where the value is. And I'm not going to say that they weren't looking at any high profile catchers at any point. But I think when the Rangers didn't pick up his option, I was floored by that. You know, it was only four and a half million dollars. It's really not that hard to see when you look back, not just last year, but the last four years. This is a good offensive catcher. And the Rangers did not even pick up his $4.5 million option, which is kind of weird because, of course, now the Rangers are considering buying because right now they're in the second wild card spot. But I think Luno saw that. And, you know, I mentioned it being like a Maury value signing. It's like why invest heavily in terms of money or in the case of a trade for a big name like that, then you'd be giving up a lot of prospects. Why do that when you have a guy like Chirinos for basically $5 million just sitting in your back pocket. You know, that's just where the value appeared. So based on the fact they did that, not only are they getting comparable or right now even better production, but because you didn't have to invest giving up those prospects for a catcher, then now you're pretty well stocked in terms of the farm system. If you think you need that number three starter by the deadline in late July, then because you didn't spend it on the catcher, you replaced it from within, then you should be able to, spend those types of prospects on the market to bring in the pitcher that they may need after Berlinger and Cole. want to ask you one big picture question because we've seen 13 home run games in the last week. We've seen Tony Kemp hit an easy upper deck home run. We've seen guys go opposite field with home runs off the end of the bat on off speed pitches. The numbers are off the charts this year. They're on a pace to break the record for most home runs in a season by 456 homers. Last I checked uh, the ball, Ben, it's juiced. I'm not a fan of this. I hated when steroids devalued the record books. And to me, this is not any more palatable. I get it, but it's not like it's, it's not as drastic as it was in the nineties. Now, clearly to some degree, you know, it, this really started back during the 2017 world series. And a lot of the players talked about it and we've seen some uptick. I get the frustration because in a sport like baseball, I think in particular, it makes comparisons really difficult. And of course, I'm sure for a lot of the players, it's really frustrating because their value is determined based on, you know, the arbitration concept, that kind of stuff. And so when you have these pitchers go out on the open market and, you know, they're trying to 
argue that, hey, I'm a good pitcher because blah, blah, blah. Well, historically, it might not, might not look that good, but all of a sudden, you know, a reliever with a mid-threes, high-threes ERA in today's league, all of a sudden, it's not that bad given some of the, uh, the, the figures that we're seeing. So I agree with you. It's frustrating. However, as someone that, you know, watched the Astros put up 10 runs last night, I also see why MLB might want to gamble that way. So it's one of those, you know, as a diehard fan, I get it. However, as someone that's, you know, also wanting to grow the sport for the next generation, I also see what, you know, the people that are pushing for more offense, why they see that as advantageous for the long-term health of the league. So it's something that, you know, it offends the the diehard in me, the baseball purist but in terms of the practical businessman, I guess I, I kind of understand it. So it's something I'm more frustrated about than more outwardly angry, I would say. Last few just rapid fire questions. Uh, Ciano Perez, Framber Valdez, both of them look fantastic this weekend against the Orioles, but it's the Orioles. Is this anything? Yes or no? Yes, because in the case of Framber, it's a lot more than just the Orioles. He has really surprised me. He's gotten better. The velocity is up. And it felt like last year, you know, he was always on the verge of a meltdown. He puts so much traffic on the bases. This year, it's gotten a little bit better. And now he's hitting his spots more. His velocity is up. I'm not putting too much stock in CNL Perez. I do think he has, you know, fairly upper 90s. I mean, he has stuff that could be really encouraging. But, you know, his ERA is over six in AAA. So I'm not going to say one scoreless three inning outing against the Orioles is anything to say that, oh, he's turned the corner. But. Valdez, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's someone I want on the playoff roster, let alone in the rotation, but he seems capable as far as every fifth day, and that's better than a lot of guys that have been with the Astros this year at the back end of that rotation. Last uh, question, Rockets-related, because this one's got me perplexed. They're talking about everybody being on the block, but maybe not everybody's on the block, but Clint Capella... The, the obvious trade ship, the obvious guy that I think everybody thinks would be available. Is there any teams out there? Can you give me a team or two that you think would be interested in Clint Capella? Because I looked around and it, it just didn't look like there was a lot of teams that might be a fit for him. Oh, I can see one that's are really potentially a good fit, and that's the New Orleans Pelicans. If they trade Anthony Davis, that's a perfect fit alongside Zion Williamson, in my opinion. The question is, are any of the assets that the Rockets might could get from the Pelicans, and it'd probably be a three-way in the Anthony Davis trade. You know, I saw one of the Ringer writers speculate today that with the Pelicans, you know, they are at least listening to the Lakers, because of course that's where Anthony Davis wants to go, and the Lakers are offering this number four pick and a couple of their young prospects, and apparently the Pelicans aren't really enamored with the number four pick. Would you take the number four pick if you're the Rockets for Capella? I don't know, but it's something to at least think about from an asset standpoint. It depends on how you value the guys in the draft. If it's the Celtics, would you think about it if it was Jalen Brown? I don't know the answer. It's one of those things. It'd be a lower floor than Capella, but a higher ceiling. But that, to me, is the team because the Pelicans, number one, if they trade Davis, they need they need a body in the middle. And beyond that, a situation like New Orleans, that's where contract certainty comes into play. With Capella locked in for four more years, he can't just leave them after a year or two. So that's something that I'm kind of watching as far as Capella – that could be a fit for him, I think. However, the one fly in the ointment, Robert, I'll point this out. I do think that the Durant-Achilles injury, that might change a little bit of the calculus. It might make you, if you're the Rockets, a little more conservative than you thought 
this time a couple of weeks ago, because now that you know for a fact, even before free agency, that Durant's not going to really be a part of the Warriors, even if he sticks around, he probably won't be a difference maker by the playoffs. Then all of a sudden, the floor scenario for the Rockets, the fact that you can run it back and, you know, almost certainly assuming health of a 55-60 win team, that matters a little bit more because the Warriors probably aren't going to be quite as elite. So I'm not going to say it radically changes because obviously the Rockets lost game six to the Warriors this year without KD. I'm aware of that. But just long term, knowing what happened to KD, I I would bet that it at least gives Daryl Morey a little more pause when it comes to the riskier deals, which I think, you know, Capella to the Pelicans for, you know, one of these young prospects or picks would certainly qualify us. How sad is it that we might have seen the best of or the last of the greatness of KD after that injury? Very sad. I mean, it, it, it sucks, especially because this whole playoffs, you, you know, he's a good guy. I mean, he's a little misunderstood. I think in many regards, the, the KD narrative misses who he is. I think he went to Golden State seeking validation. He's not the villain, although he's tried to embrace that persona to some degree after the backlash. It really seemed like this playoff run, I noticed it just being around him during that Rocket series. He was getting a lot more comfortable when it came to the way he used to be in Oklahoma City. He was more engaging with the media, with the fans. He seemed – and now, you know, even before the injury, this playoff run kind of became defined by, oh, well, how much do the Warriors really need KD? And, of course, we – for a couple of series, the end of the Rockets series, the Blazers series said, well – they're winning without him. Now, of course, the Raptors series shows, even though they're down 3-2 as we're recording this, clearly I think they'd rather KD be healthy. In fact, that's why both sides, the Warriors and KD, pushed the envelope in Game 5, and unfortunately that may have led to his injury. But yeah, it just sucks because this whole playoff run, you know, it's been kind of this this question, this one of the best, most talented players in NBA history, how much do they need him? And now, you know, he came back in Game 5, he's playing well, and it's like, oh, you know, he's going to get some appreciation, and now... You know, he's done for the playoffs, and with that injury, who knows if he's ever the same guy. So, yeah, it's just brutal for him because it felt like, you know, after a postseason, which the narratives are kind of against him and all this talk about, well, does he really matter there? You know, he was starting to turn a corner personally, and, of course, he was going to be able, if he wasn't happy with his role in Golden State, to go somewhere else if he wanted. And now, you know, it's the worst of everything. If the Warriors won a title, it's without him and— as far as what comes next, I mean, yeah, he could, he could conceivably leave Golden State, but who knows what he's going to look like when he comes back either at the end of next year or the beginning of the 2020-2021 season. For more great takes, you guys know where to go. More of that great insight on the Rockets and everything going on in the NBA on Locked on Rockets. Ben, thanks so much for doing this. I'm, I'm waving you over to Minute Maid Park because I know you're heading over there to see some more Your Dongs. Yes, sir. Air Your Dong. Looking forward to it. Can't wait till that shirt gets in. Thanks a bunch, man. Thank you. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Touchdown!